headed into 2021. So I figured maybe it'd be appropriate to have some scripture that has a verse 20 in it and some that has a verse 21. So I put all those in a hat and uh, pulled them out, and this is what we get. So I hope it fits. In all seriousness, this, this passage from Hebrews is, is a benediction, literally meaning a good word, a good word usually coming at the end of a book or the end of a service. You hear us give a benediction at the end of each service. So this is a benediction. This is a good word and probably quite fitting for us as we move from 2020 to 2021. So this is our passage. I ask you if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. And you'll see the way that this is laid out here is kind of the flow that the author has here, emphasizing who it is who is giving the good word and what is our call, that one verb in there, that we're to be equipped. So hear now God's Word for us. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Our Father, in Ephesians, you tell us that you give us beyond all that we ask or imagine. And you meant that. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So the first word in our passage, and I invite you to keep it open because we will walk through it phrase by phrase. The first word is now. Now is one of those words in a, in a passage where if you see therefore, you're supposed to ask, what is it there for? Now, now, now in light of where we are, for the author, for the readers, for the hearers, where they were. But if you think about it for us, scripture is for us as well. We can glance back when we hear that. Now, here's where we are. And as we glance back, say through 2020, we might evaluate what are the, the pros, the cons you know, of, of 2020 for us. And we might admit there's a lot of cons or negatives. Many have suffered physical sickness, some with COVID, some otherwise. Some have experienced economic loss of a job or some form of income. Many lonely because of sickness or racial tension. And loneliness can affect us even, studies show neurologically, that loneliness can affect our nervous system. And we know the difference between a virtual call and face-to-face engagement. Somebody said recently, what's the definition of Sheol? In the Bible, that term for death. And they said, well, that's another Zoom call. We know the difference there. And it affects us, that loneliness. Many have experienced loss of loved ones. Loss of significance. Maybe for an athlete not to be out there and to be able to play the game 
the way you're used to, loss of significance, loss of safety. Will this go on? Will 2021 be better or could it even be worse or the same? Loss of control. Can you really change anything? Do I have an effect? So there's much regret. And you know, it said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. 2020, well, is that really true? But then there are some pros, some benefits, some good things. And he would say, well, look at, look at the home improvement project that I got done. Look at this. Look how nice that looks. Or maybe lots of fitness stuff that you've been able to do at home and somehow you're healthier. Maybe we'd say, well, look at all the family time we've been able to have. Or priorities, improved priorities. I think in the end, when you hear those negatives and positives, weigh them in the balance, we end up often lamenting and just say, God, what, what are you doing? What have you done? And so that even goes further as we lament. There's times where we say, now, now, as we glance back, we say, what's in my past? Our past shapes us. And there are many regrets, even going more than just the last year. We might think, well, things that I've lost, money can be restored, possessions can be restored, but not time. Lost time in the past, I, that can't be restored. Just this past week, we were with one of Donna's aunts, and she made this beautiful quilt for Elizabeth. And she had spent probably 30, 40, 50 hours knitting this beautiful quilt. And my first thought was, Elizabeth, don't lose this. If you were to lose this, those hours are just lost. There's no getting that time back. Lost time could be rebellious years in your past. Could be years planning ahead with a loved one who passed away. Or for those in college, years spent pursuing a wrong major. Probably raise our hands for many of us who have wasted time in a lost major. And we're tempted to glance back further and say, well, let's, let's get back past 2020. Let's just go, can we go back to 2019? Can we just have it the way it used to be? But we say no. We glance back, but we say glancing back doesn't mean turning around. It doesn't mean turning around. When you're riding on a bike, you kind of glance back, see if there's a car coming. But if you do too much, you're going to just turn a full circle and you're going to crash. And that's what the Israelites did so often. They said, well, can we go back to Egypt? It was so much better. Really? But they said that. Or Lot's wife, who did much more than glance back. She turned and longed for the past and turned to Saul. So we can be thankful for the past, but not to the extent that we say, God, you in the future... I can't trust that. I, I just want to go back. I just want the past. The good news is, brothers and sisters, when we consider time, when you consider time, God can restore, he says so, in this amazing promise from Joel chapter 2. He says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. I will restore to you the years. And we say, 
God, how, how are you going to give me time back? You're just going to give me a couple years? What's meant there is that the end goal for us in life is deeper fellowship with God. There's nothing better. And he can give us this. He can multiply your fruitfulness beyond we ask what we ask or imagine. That is how he can restore the time, give you depth in your relationship with him no matter where you are in your life. Scripture says, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Better to be with the Lord. Better to be with the Lord. So we glance back in the passage, but then we run forward by faith. Run forward by faith. Gerald Jansen says this of faith. He says, faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is fear that takes itself to God and there finds the freedom and the voice both to call for God to act and to give reassurance to others whose own fear only wants to lead backwards. So our big idea this morning is that God blesses us with a benediction to 2020 to equip us for the task of running forward to do his will for Christ's glory. And in the passage and in your bulletin, you have an outline. And there are three T's that we'll see here in the passage. The first T around being equipped for what's ahead is that we have the right trainer who's going to take us forward. The passage starts off with, it says, may the God of peace, our trainer, may the God of peace. Now, the audience here in this book was likely many Jewish Christians, and they, they faced persecution on multiple fronts. They would have uh, Rome, because they were living near Rome, Rome would be persecuting them. But then on the other side, there were the Jews who hadn't converted to Christianity, who were in tight with Rome, who were also persecuting the Jewish Christians. So they were squeezed from multiple fronts. And for us, for Christians nowadays, isn't that more and more the case? It's not easy to just say, hey, we're a Bible Belt Christian, aren't we all? No. We know in this culture that Christians more and more are facing true persecution. And so God is saying, you can have peace with me, which is even more significant than what you could have in the world. And God's saying, I give you peace. But think about this, how silly it would be if you were going out to, here's the massive army before us, and come out waving a little white flag, and say, well, here's what I can offer you. Don't we often do that with God, the Lord of the universe? We say, God, if you will do this, I'll do this. Quite silly. Only the God of peace can make us at peace with ourselves, with each other, and at peace with him. And he offers that. And he goes on to say, the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, brought again from the dead. That verb there, brought again, has a nautical element to it, meaning, in a sense, it, it, it speaks of bringing a vessel up from land to deep water, to put to sea. And in that is wrapped what Christ did for us, the depth of his humiliation, 
His coming to be incarnate, we sing of this beautiful little baby, but that was, that was humiliating that Christ came as a baby and then humiliated even further to death on the cross, but now raised to glory, brought up, raised to glory. And we could, in a sense, say that, you know, that had to happen. That had to happen. What, what do we mean there? Think of the Chronicles of Narnia. When Aslan is killed, you, you're, something just clicks and says, this is not right. If there's anything good, if there's anything true, if there's anything beautiful in Narnia, he must be raised. And he was. And we think of Christ. If there's anything good, true, beautiful in the universe, he had to be raised. It had to be. He could not have lain there if there was anything good. And indeed, that's the case. The most beautiful and good thing ever, Christ raised from the dead. And because of that, all history is different. All history revolves around Christ. Think of that literally. A.D. and B.C. Right? Changes. Pivots around Christ. And our culture nowadays wants to say, well, we'll we'll fix that. We'll have a BCE before the common era and then a common era. We'll take Christ out of the picture. Same numbers. You can't take Christ out of the picture. The one who was raised from the dead, all history pivots around him. And the implication for us is, if Christ was raised, then we will be too. And that gives us peace. Horatio Spafford, who wrote the the famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, the backstory on that, he says, When peace like a river attendeth my way. He was a wealthy lawyer living in the United States, but he and his wife, Anna, suffered greatly. First, a four-year-old son died of a scarlet fever. And then years later, they lived in America, and he said, we're going to go on vacation to England to hear the evangelist D.L. Moody to preach. And, And Horatio was detained for work and sent his wife and the four girls ahead on ship across the Atlantic. And unfortunately, they were hit by a large vessel, and the ship sank in 12 minutes. Anna, unconscious, was was saved on some sort of makeshift raft. And she just telegraphs to Horatio, says, saved alone, saved alone. Two days later, Horatio crosses the Atlantic to be with his wife, and the captain calls him up on board and says, this, this is the spot where, uh, where the ship sank. And hearing that, Horatio goes down below and pens the words to that hymn, It is well with my soul. And of his dear daughters, he says, Safe with the Lord, dear lambs. Because he knew the one who brought again from the dead, the Lord Jesus, would bring up his dear lambs. Brought again from the dead, the shepherd of the sheep. Now in our English Bibles it says the great shepherd of the sheep, but literally in the Greek this is the shepherd of the sheep, 
the great. And the neat thing about that is we've had many rulers through the years who take on the title the great, whether it's Caesar or many other just uh, sports heroes even, Muhammad Ali, you know, the greatest, the greatest of all time, took that title. But I can never get out of my mind the picture of Muhammad Ali, the greatest, but then at the end of his life, wrecked by Parkinson's, lighting the torch at the Atlantic, uh, uh, Atlanta Olympic Games, shaking as he lit that. All of us will come to the end. The great? No. There's only one truly the great. Only one who is really awesome and great. And we have to be his sheep to receive his shepherding. And, and often and we're taught, sheep are stupid. I don't want to be a sheep. We got to admit, I need a shepherd. I need a shepherd. We're all following somebody. Okay, we're all following somebody and aligning with somebody. I've added myself to a, a mail out from um, this atheist, uh, whatever, camps and stuff like that, because I want to know what are they saying? What, what are their arguments and able to be able to dialogue with them? And so the things they point out, come to our camp so you will think critically. You need to think for yourself and not fall into this and that. And they're still aligning themselves to someone. They're still following someone. We're saying we follow the great, the shepherd of the sheep, the great. By the blood. He was raised by the blood. Now, many hate the sight of blood. Might even faint when they see blood. And, and there are times I'll give blood, and I don't, I'm not really fired up about it, so I'm giving the blood, but I'm not looking at it trickling down into that bag and all that because I'll feel a little faint when I see that. But, but I realize, okay, this blood literally... Down the road, it could be a transfusion that really helps somebody. Maybe they're going to live from this blood. Our only hope, our only hope is soaked in the blood of Christ. Apart from the blood of Christ, by the blood, there is no atonement for your sin. There is no propitiation or covering of God's wrath. There is no substitution for your guilt. You need somebody in your place. There's no redemption from Satan's ownership. Satan has a right claim to anyone who is not covered by the blood of Christ. There is no reconciliation of your relationship with God Almighty apart from the blood of Christ. All forgiveness flows from the blood of the cross. And that blood from the cross comes from the heart. It's, it finds its fountain, its spring in the love of the Father. From the love of the Father is where the blood flows. And the God of peace, here it says, by the blood of the eternal covenant. What is this eternal covenant. When we think of covenant, we think sometimes of contracts. Okay? That helps a little bit. We also know some of you have heard there was a covenant of works. 
covenant of works made with Adam, do this and live. He fails, and there's a covenant of grace. Thank you for that covenant of grace. We don't often hear about the covenant of redemption. God is the covenant keeper. We break covenants, he keeps covenants. This is a covenant that is all gospel for us. Before creation, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit made a covenant that is all good for us. Wrote this trivial little poem to try to wrap around what is this covenant of redemption. Ere time began, the Holy Trinity agreed to covenant in full unity. The Son to take on flesh, born of woman, every law to keep to break, not one. Where Adam failed, he would please Abba's will. His payment to take on the elect's bill. Our desire for God, imminent and near, love incarnate at the cross, cast out all fear. The Father's displeasure assumed he wept. Deep, deep love allowed the prophecy kept. Now spirit indwells the faithful's good story, redeemed to their home ever in glory. To sum up this wonderful covenant, the eternal covenant, we could say the Father was the initiator, Christ the executor, the Spirit the applier. They're all in there. Or the Father thought it, the Son bought it, and the Holy Spirit wrought it. All in that wonderful covenant that God blesses us with. Wrapped into that too is that fancy term imputation. Imputation. Thinking about imputation, my children all like to refer to Clemson football. I don't see any orange on. I'm amazed. Clemson football is we. We. We won. We did this. Did you really? Did you catch that pass? Did you make that sack? How many points did you score? We say we. Jesus Christ says, yes, say we. I want you to say we. I died on the cross for you. Say we. I want you getting credit for what I did. I want that. That's imputation. We get credit for what he suffered for us. And then that pivot of the verse here in 21 goes on to equip. The God of peace equips us. The word used means literally to make fit or complete. God equips you and me. Let's think about this. If, if you're going to go class five rapids with Dave Sperry, the good thing is Dave knows the river. He knows what we need. He knows what's coming on this part of the river. We trust him in the same way the Father knows. He knows what's coming in 2021. We don't. But he does. And therefore we can run forward equipped for the task. The second T, the task to do his will. Our task is to know and do God's will. Now, admittedly, if you're like me, that's one of the most challenging things in the life of a Christian. What is God's will? And 
how do I do it? How do I do it? Here's a few points to throw out that maybe will help you to wrap your head around that. The first is this. When we're considering the will of God, be willing to do the will of God before you know it. And said, saying, Lord, open hands. Whatever I have, whatever you've given me, I'm willing to give it up or to use it for the sake of your will. I'm yours. Open hands. John 7 emphasizes that point because it says, if any man's will is to do God's will, meaning first step is you're seeking God's will, be willing to do it. Be willing to do it if he shows it to you, when he shows it to you. Secondly, follow scripture. Scripture will not always just say, you should do this one. It'll limit some options. It'll limit some options at least if it doesn't give you a clear answer. For instance, you might be considering, should I take this job? Should we move here? Should we... Thessalonians says, God's will, your sanctification. So there are some jobs, say, or some things that you could do which would not be sanctifying for you. And you can say, okay, well, I'll cross that off the list. That's not God's will for me. Third one, which I think is pretty significant. God's will sometimes, but is not always or maybe even often, around just discrete decisions. Should I marry Sally? Should I marry Sue? You could be in God's will if you married either or neither. God's will is not, it can be sometimes, it's not always just these discrete decisions. If you're walking with the Father, it could have been any of those. And think of this, Mary and Martha, Mary and Martha, Martha, should I do the dishes? Should I cook? Should I clean the floor? But then she indicts herself. How? Jesus, Mary's not doing this stuff. Make her do it. The good thing is, though, at least Mary went to Jesus. Jesus can handle those types of tough questions. So if we're struggling with something, go to God don't go to someone else and say, they're not doing this. Look at that. Slander, slander, gossip. God can handle it. So fortunately, Mary goes to Jesus. And Jesus, in effect, says, you know what, Mary? The will of God isn't about just cleaning the dishes. It's about relationship. It's about, as John Owen said, it's about communion with me. That's my will, that you have deep communion and fellowship with me. Better than just the answer of this or that, I want to give you myself. I want to give you myself. And then the last point of this, so often with the will of God, we are stubborn, not stupid. So often the will of God is there, stupid that we can't figure it out but we're stubborn we don't want to accept it or do it the good news is god's will for us is good for us and we see this as we go further in the passage it says this equip equip you with everything good that you may do 
His will. Now that word do, His will, is the same word working. So you could basically say, do His will, doing in us. So what we do, God is really the one doing in us. It's kind of a word play there. So the work of God makes our work possible. That which is pleasing in his sight. Pleasing in his sight. That next phrase there. We could think of this. We, are, are, we, we want to please the Father's gaze. Chronicles says this. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. God wants to. He's not Orwell. Just big brother. Look, I gotcha. I gotcha. He's looking to bless. He's looking to bless. And what a blessing that is. As W.H. Auden said, for those who are blessed by God, listen to this powerful statement. The blessed will not care what angle they are regarded from, having nothing to hide. Think of the freedom in that. God wants to bless you, believer. He is for you. So who cares what anybody else thinks? I'm pleasing my Father. Doesn't matter. I'm not, don't need to go out and please everyone else. I'm for Him, the audience of one. And the final T is this we have the trainer, we have the task, and then we have the telos. I need a third T. Telos is Greek for goal. Our goal. What is our end goal? Telos. To glorify Christ. And in this passage, there's prepositions from, through, to. From him. Both as our Savior and King, Christ gives good gifts. Through him. Through him. Christ is the altar we could say, upon which all our sacrifices are offered through Christ, the altar through which we offer. To him, he's the only one who really matters. Christ is not a road that we use to get to something else. He is the end goal. There is nothing better than Christ himself, nothing better. The Scottish theologian said, when I've been in heaven 10,000 years looking at the glory of Christ, then I might finally have a look around. He's it. He's the end. He's what I want and long for. So finally, our application. How will I, how will you grow in learning God's will to think, feel, or do something differently with that? And I say that not to add stress. Heard this recently that American high school students are on average as anxious as a psychiatric patient of the 1950s. Our high school students are under that much stress, not to mention adults. So I'm not here to add more stress with this assignment, but rather to say this is a blessing, not something to add anxiety. Learning God's will should be a blessing, can be a blessing for us. And simply say this, okay, so if I'm going to say this is our application, maybe I'll share what this has meant to me as I've wrestled through this. And I'm going to call it this. 
The wisdom of humility. The wisdom of humility. Sarah Condon says this of 2020. Correction is the only control we have left. Even if my hopelessness is off the charts and my heart is cracked in two, I can use my last breath to call out what you have done wrong. It must please the devil that no matter how tired we are, we always have room for personal fury. It's not where I want to go. And this isn't saying don't correct what's wrong or just have unity for the sake of unity and no truth. No, no, no. But when we feel justification, because I can point at you and say, look what you're doing wrong. I'm justified and I'm better. That is stealing Christ's atonement. So in 2021, I want to, I hope you do, to run to communion. Communion with God, the one possession worth keeping forever. And so maybe the skeptic this morning, here or listening, might say, encourage you just to say, consider the freedom in what you could have by leaving behind so many things that are grasping you and embracing the one thing that matters, the God of peace. Let us pray.